0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Philippa lacey Brule, and I want to extend a warm welcome to you. If you are new here, hi, thank you for joining. And if you are returning, thank you so much for your support. In this podcast, we explore all sorts of things that have gone on in British history. We look at people, we look at events, we look at outcomes and perhaps look at them from a different perspective than usual. If you would like to support me in this free podcast, this podcast will always remain free, but if you would like to support me, then you can head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash British history, and you can choose the tier there that would suit you best, starting from any £3 a month just for your kind support. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. In this episode, I am delighted to bring to you my chat with historian Tracy Borman about female rule in Britain. Tracy is a best selling author, historian, and broadcaster specialising in the Tudor period. Her books include Elizabeth's Women, Thomas Cromwell, The Private Lives of the Tudors, Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him, and most recently, Crown and Sceptre A History of the British Monarchy. She has also written a fictional trilogy, The King's Witch, based in the court of James I. Listen out for details of how you can win this signed copy of Tracy's book, The Private Lives of the Tudors, at the end of this video. Tracy is also Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces and Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust. She has presented a number of history programmes for Channel 5 and the Smithsonian Channel, including The Fall of Anne Boleyn, Inside the Tower of London and Henry VIII and the King's Men. She is a regular contributor to BBC History magazine and gives talks on her books across the country and abroad. And indeed, I was fortunate enough to hear Tracy speak at the Church of St John the Baptist in Cirencester recently. I'm also very happy to say that Tracy will be speaking on all of the history tours I'm organizing in 2022 this year. They are fully booked now, but make sure you don't miss out in 2023 by signing up to receive my newsletter at britishhistorytours.com. Now today, we are focusing our discussion on Tracy's latest book, Crown and Scepter. Now members of my British History patron were able to ask Tracy their own questions which I put to her after the main interview. You can become a patron and see the video at patreon.com forward slash British History as well as gaining loads of history lover benefits including putting your own questions to future guests take a look at the memberships available. Now let's get into today's episode. I want to welcome Tracy and say a big thank you to you for speaking to me today. Your latest book is fantastic. And although you begin in 1066, you set the scene for the Norman invasion and what follows in the period before and which, as I listened, it became more and more clear that knowing what was in place prior to William of Normandy landing, is it becomes more vital in understanding not only what happened immediately following the conquest, but those ripple effects on the monarchy ever since. Mm. And there is so much I could and would love to delve into, into with you with from your book. But today, we're going to focus on female rule in England and consequently Britain. I'd like to begin with, if I may, the underlying assumptions of female rule being somewhat of an abomination and to be avoided at all costs. So why was the idea of female rule so strongly rejected in the past
1: that's a really great question um i mean partly um it was that or mostly i guess it was just the role of women in society their position in society they were seen as second-class citizens really um widely held belief was that women were weaker physically um mentally emotionally and that um it was a deeply limited and conventional view that, you know, women were there to basically keep the species going, but men were there as leaders. Now I've simplified it a lot because, of course, you do get exceptions to that with some strong female regents that actually did manage to to kind of hold on to their position. But um, here in Britain and really more precisely England in the period I'm talking about, um, we didn't have a great track record of female rulers, we didn't have many of them, frankly, until the Tudors. Um, We had the Empress Matilda, who um, plunged the country into civil war, um, because she um, went about her rule completely the wrong way. She was very high handed and arrogant. She didn't appreciate the need to win hearts and minds. She just wanted to win arguments, really. Um, And it plunged the country into civil war. Um, But but she did have a really tall order. To actually come in as queen and get people to accept her, because of that, you know, deep-seated misogyny uh, that that existed in society, and you know, it, it's something that runs all the way through history. We, we still haven't quite got over it today. I think it's fair to say, but we're we're much further further advanced. But it's only that only really changes with Elizabeth, um, and I think it's Elizabeth who, uh, in the sort of second half of the 16th century, actually persuades people that. Queens can work. Queens are quite a good idea. She was such a positive role model as a female sovereign, but until then there really weren't many or any positive kind of role models for that. Um, so after Empress Matilda, then you know you've got a big gap, Mary Tudor, just before her, of course Lady Jane Grey perhaps unfair to judge her as a failure because she didn't want to be queen and then she was put on the throne and quickly taken off it. So she didn't have a chance to prove herself. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it all changed with Elizabeth, but it just took a very long time to overcome those deep-seated prejudices.
0: So we'll, we'll talk more in depth about the Queen's regnant. Have I got that the right way around? Yes. yes. Um, yes. It, 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 shortly, I'm also interested though, to just talk briefly and probably a bit high level, but about there was a way for women to be influential via being the queen consort. Um, what level of influence did they have? And do we, you know, do we have any good examples of ones that were liked and, or disliked and you know, how influential were they? And you're absolutely right in that, that that's how women could
1: really gain power and they did gain power. And I hate it when it's called soft power this because it Mm. somehow demeans it. Um, But Queen's Consort, there are so many examples of very, very clever able queen's consort who knew how to work within the boundaries that were set and i'm thinking of the likes um of uh eleanor both eleanors actually eleanor of castile um consort of edward the first also more famously eleanor of aquitaine the, the consort of henry ii who really absolutely did wield power and mm. and not all that subtly um and my own That's personal not favorite soft, but, bear, was she yeah, exactly not soft at all <laughs> my own personal favorite is Matilda of Flanders the wife of William the Conqueror who you know just brought much needed kind of profile um, positive profile to the royal family she she appreciated that there was a lot of PR involved in being a successful dynasty and that's something her husband William the Conqueror did not appreciate he just tried to beat people into submission, whereas Matilda went about it much more cleverly, trying to win hearts and minds. Um, So there are some fantastic examples, particularly in the medieval period of of Queen's consort. Um, And so that was really where the greatest power lay throughout history for women, because we've still had far, far more kings than queens um, so you know, I can talk in a quite sweeping way about this. That you know, it was queen's consort that was the real opportunity to to kind of exert power and influence.
0: Mm. So then we get to the Tudor period. We're going to we come onto this quite quickly because the only contenders for the throne are female. So it's time for a bit of a rethink in society. I should have thought. And when it becomes clear, so in fifteen fifty three, that Edward the sixth is not going to live. And he has to, he's only got female relatives in which to choose from for his successor, his two half sisters, obviously Mary and Elizabeth and his grey cousins. And he chooses Lady Jane Grey, his cousin, over his half sisters. Why did he choose to do that?
1: Yeah, well, a lot was to do with um, Edward being manipulated, I think, um, by by those around him, in particular, uh, Lady Jane Grey's sort of father in law, um, uh, John Dudley, Um, but also Edward wanted to be sure that the next ruler would be uncontestably Protestant. It was that his driving force was his Protestant religion. And even though his sister Elizabeth was Protestant, he didn't want to take the risk that she would marry some foreign Catholic prince. And so he disinherited her along with Mary, who was very much a Catholic, openly so. Whereas Lady Jane Grey, um, she was destined to marry Guilford Dudley, the son of uh, John Dudley. She was. A much safer bet as a Protestant monarch, and so that's why he disinherited. Um, and of course, with, with quite tumultuous uh results after that.
0: Because mm, I was gonna say Lady Jane's crown, it was very quickly disputed by yes. Mary, of course, but it became obvious very quickly that Mary had got a lot of and Where did that? Where did that level of support come from? Do you think it was always rumbling there? Did people just expect that it was going to be Mary? Where where did that come from?
1: I'm so sorry about my dog Cromwell barking. (laughs) You know, if we wait until he's quiet, we won't be recording this at all. It just takes anybody walking past. There was a huge groundswell of support for Mary, among actually among Protestants and Catholics alike. And that's because she was seen as a princess of the blood. She was the true successor. Regardless of your religion, it was birth that mattered. And she was the daughter, the eldest daughter of Henry VIII. She was next in line. People didn't like the laws being overturned like that the succession in particular being overturned so she appealed to that she is the true Tudor princess and Lady Jane Grey is just an interloper and that's how I think she she kind of won that particular battle for support across the country.
0: Mm. Yeah um, so I'd like to talk here a little bit about Mary actually because she gets the the reputation with this nickname of bloody mary but what mm-hmm. what kind of ruler actually was she and did she deserve that that yes.
1: That. I don't think she does deserve all the bad press. Certainly she doesn't mm. deserve to be dismissed as just bloody Mary and that unmitigated disaster of a rule. She had a lot to overcome and she had to set a lot of precedents as a queen regnant because there hadn't been one for 350 years. Um, and those precedents benefited her sister Elizabeth, who is often, and I've done it myself, compared very favourably to Mary because uh, she was... You know undoubtedly the, the more successful and certainly the longer reigning queen. But she did owe Mary a lot for that. um you know, even down to you know Mary's coronation, how how she should be styled and um and her relationship it, uh, with regard to Philip, her husband. um so I do think Mary had an awful lot to overcome, and she had that that kind of endemic um prejudice to overcome. um but where I think Mary did fall down is not being pragmatic enough. Um, she she was dogmatic. She stuck to her principles come hell or high water. And of course, her most uh, famous of principles was that um, her desire to restore Roman Catholicism. And I think what she didn't appreciate was that need for compromise, that need for toleration. Um, and it, it really proved her undoing as queen. She even... Even some Catholics, quite a few Catholics actually were appalled by the, the burning of, of Protestants. And it really did lose Mary, that sort of goodwill of her people. And if you do that, then you've got a very hard job to stay queen. Of course, she didn't lose her throne. She died quite young. And, and just after, you know, five years, we'd it young today. Uh, after five years of being queen. Um, But, you know, one wonders what would have happened if she'd stayed queen much longer because there was this real groundswell of opposition rising up, I think, against her. And also the fact that she married the King of Spain and Englishmen didn't like the idea that England was just going to be a little satellite of Spain and kind of swallowed up by this great empire. Uh, So I think she perhaps could have chosen more wisely uh, as, you know, in a husband anyway.
0: I find it interesting how attitudes towards female rule had to change with Mary mm. because she got married, and mm. when weren't there, weren't there changes brought in in order to protecting them from becoming a satellite of Spain? I believe yeah. there were some rules around, yes, the marriage.
1: There were indeed um, quite stringent rules actually to to protect that from um sorry to prevent that from happening. So I just lost what word I wanted then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so, and also to really project the fact that Mary was sovereign, Philip was her consort. He wasn't going to be King of England in his own right. And that's something Mary actually wanted. She wanted him to have power, um, but there were rules put in place so that she was sole queen. So she was, you know, that was an important distinction. It's not a joint monarchy in the true sense of the word, for example, when much later in the late 17th century, we get William III and, and Mary um, as joint proper joint monarchs, it wasn't like that. And Parliament wanted to make absolutely sure that England wasn't just going to be some little offshoot of the much greater Spanish Empire. So they did put some very, very stringent rules in place to protect against that.
0: It's interesting, is it? Because once the... Once... Rules are in place; they're more difficult to remove. So, absolutely. Um, so, so we get then an, another female to female change of power. This time, though, slightly more peaceful, because <laughs> <laughs> we to go from Mary to her half sister Elizabeth, which is interesting. Thinking of how keen. That's not even a strong enough word Mary was to bring the the country back under the Catholic faith and the Pope, but she left her throne to her half-sister, her Protestant half-sister Elizabeth. How close to her death did Mary name Elizabeth her successor and did did she actually have any other choices? Mm, I don't think she had too
1: many other choices, so I'll start with that one. There were other blood claimants, but, you know, given what had happened with Mary's accession, uh, I think she knew people wouldn't expect, uh, accept rather, another kind of Lady Jane Grey, um, for example. Um, But Mary did resist until almost her kind of final hour from naming Elizabeth as her successor because religion was all-consuming for Mary Mm -hmm. and she tried desperately to make Elizabeth promise to uphold the Catholic religion and uh, Elizabeth was quite discreet in her answers but I think Mary knew full well that the first thing Elizabeth would do would be to overhaul this kind of uh, counter-reformation that Mary had had set in train. Um, So really i think mary knew in her heart for a long time that it was going to have to be elizabeth uh, certainly when those pregnancies turned out to be either phantom pregnancies or the result of actually a, some kind of cancer but she just didn't want to name her she she was almost you know to her last breath just clinging on to hope of a different successor somehow um, and i think elizabeth learned from that as well because she knew how people the minute that it became obvious mary wasn't going to have any children how people started flocking to her and she didn't want the same to happen to her when she was queen. So she held off naming James the Sixth of Scotland as her heir for the same reason. Um, you know, she didn't want to lose the attention and the love of her people. Uh, so again, Elizabeth benefited really. She'd learned a valuable lesson
0: from her sister. It's interesting how Elizabeth trod very carefully, even with her sister on her deathbed, um, yes, there's some I don't know what would you call it there some some sort of sisterly love, or, or was she being political, or was she you know, is there any point in telling someone on their deathbed you are not going to see through their wishes? <laughs> I think Elizabeth is a great pragmatist. I think she's one of the best examples
1: of a pragmatist in history. So why upset the apple cart? You know, she's she's going to be discreet. I don't think it's necessarily sisterly love. I think she's just being quite political. She doesn't like to um, play her cards too openly. Um, She, for the same reason, doesn't mention her mother very much, even though I think she absolutely revered Anne Boleyn's memory. But she knew... That such things could be divisive, so she kept her counsel, and I think she was very sensible in doing that.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and actually quite a good indication, or that was the beginnings of how she she tro- she she trod that very fine line for as long as she could. I think, yes, she did. Religion. Absolutely. Um, so she is probably our most famous female monarch, I'd have thought, and not least because. I think, I think, in my opinion, because of her epithets of Gloriana and the Virgin Queen. What was she like? Does she deserve those? Um, Yeah, how good a ruler was she? And I really want to know, when do you think Elizabeth decided not to get married? Oh,
1: I think um, I'm going to ask that first so I don't forget it, because I think she decided from the age of eight, she, she yeah. vowed when she was eight years old that she would never marry. And what happened when she was eight is the execution of Catherine Howard, um, a, a stepmother of Elizabeth's. Uh, she'd had a few of those. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it, she was also very much aware of what happened to her own mother, Anne Boleyn. Um, as to whether she deserves you know, the Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, the iconic reputation, I would say absolutely she does. She was my favourite monarch before writing Crown and Scepter, and she's even more my favourite now, having researched 40 other monarchs, I had something to compare her with. And I just think she's so admirable. She made such sacrifices um, in order to do what was right. Um, She was, as I say, I I always admire pragmatism in people. I think it's a great, great skill to have. And she managed to find a middle way in religion. Uh, She didn't rush into wars. um, And you know, she she realized that it was very, very important to keep listening to the, to her people. Um, she set their will, you know, above most other things, um, and they adored her for it. Well, I was in a recent um kind of debate about uh well, we kind of ran, ran a World Cup of monarchs, and Athelstan beat Elizabeth to the title of our greatest British monarch, which I, I'm still outraged by. <laughs> Because, I mean, nobody's even heard of him for a start. And he, you know, no, Um, it's got to be Elizabeth. She has so much, she had so much to overcome as well. That that very strong prejudice against female rulers was still there. Her half-sister's reign had been pretty disastrous. And yet she triumphed. She confounded expectations and she went down in history. But I do think she deserves that. It's not just spin. It's not just PR. She had the goods to back it up.
0: So do you think she was as successful in changing their minds about female monarchy in her own time? <laughs> Hello. Sorry, i not a I think she was, actually. I think she was because I think what was her
1: masterstroke is that she pretended to agree with all of these male courtiers who thought it was a disaster. And now I've got the dog barking, I've got the cat on my desk. I'm very <laughs> sorry. It's like a menagerie here. Um, so yeah. she pretended that, and, and that got them on side. Because, you know, she, she was famously apologetic for being a weak and feeble woman. I don't think she believed that for a minute. I don't But, know. you know, you, it's easy to get somebody on side if you kind of kind of flatter their opinions and, and pretend that you you agree. That's a much more effective tactic. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at her actions, it's clear she didn't believe a word of that. You know, she absolutely believed in her own power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she did win people over um and and by the end she was she was widely mourned and by at all levels of society it wasn't there was there might have been a kind of slight sense of relief when James ascended the throne because oh we've got a man at last but they were soon regretting the loss of good Queen Bess and kind of bring back the Tudors all is forgiven.
0: I love that she says things said things like I'm a weak female. Feeble woman, and then there's just a big butt. Yes, yes, but But (laughs) I about to do this. Despite that, yes, (laughs) fantastic. I mean, she just had such an ear and eye for not just the theatre of court, but how, yeah, how her actions came across, winning Mm -hmm. people over. I suppose it's it's really interesting to think of her learning that from her life experiences i suppose i mean there's no mm. there's no coaches in tutoring no. i assume as to how to you know how to control your pr um yeah she watched and she learned she was never supposed to be queen
1: and a running theme throughout my book is some of our most successful monarchs were not supposed to come to the throne um and i don't know why that is if there's not that kind of sense of entitlement, it's because they have to kind of work harder for it. Um, if that, you know, if it wasn't theirs by birthright, um, but Elizabeth was an absolute cl- classic example of this. She, you know, was almost the forgotten younger daughter of Henry VIII, never going to be queen, and she made a better job of it than any of the other of Henry's heirs. Mm.
0: Her, her story is fantastic, and I believe Queen Anne, when she came to the throne, sort of reinvoked the memory of of Elizabeth.
1: Yes she did because Anne gets a bad press as well in a way or at least she gets the press of just being pregnant 17 times that's what people dismiss her that's it basically. Mm -hmm. Anne was very charismatic she she absolutely was in tune with the people and she brought back much beloved um, royal ceremonies such as touching for the king's evil now the king's evil was was the disease scrofula and there was this big ceremony that had been around um for centuries where the monarch would um, sort of sit enthroned and then a procession of their uh, subjects who were suffering from the disease would come and be touched by the king or queen and people set a lot of store by this ceremony and queen anne realized that and um, and she reinstated it. And there's a, a lovely description of Samuel Johnson um, actually receiving the royal touch and just what it meant to him as well. People didn't forget things like that. And, I, and so I think Anne absolutely was a chip off the old Elizabeth block in terms of being in touch with the wishes of your people.
0: Anne fascinates me, actually. She was so hands on mm-hmm. as well. It was almost like she because they didn't have a very great education, did they, Anne and, and her sister Mary? but. She seemed to come to the throne with a great awareness of that and then put the work in. Do you think that's fair? I think that's
1: very fair. I think that's very fair.
0: She, she didn't come knowing
1: everything, um, but she came willing to work. And she, I think, attended more council meetings than any other monarch before her. She was very assiduous in her duties. Um, and, yeah, she took it all very seriously. She didn't just like the froth and saccharine, it's been called, you know, the pomp and the pageantry, she was actually prepared to work hard and and fulfil what was then a constitutional role. Because by the time of Anne, monarchy and the nature of monarchy had changed hugely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Monarchs no longer ruled, they merely reigned. It was a largely symbolic role I and mean, they still had a political role but it was much less than it had been and Anne appreciated that and she really did take her duties very very seriously so I think she's hugely to be admired um and I'm pleased she's had a bit more focus in recent years although I'm not sure the film that the favorite makes us remember her for what we should
0: <laughs> no I've spoken about that more recently about that, that film it's it's one of my yeah. least favorites uh for, for being <laughs> yeah. called the favorite um I know. so her sister mary the second had already been queen like you mentioned earlier as a joint monarch with mm. william the third her husband now she predeceased him so we get the joint monarchy then william and then and then uh Anne but mary didn't seem that interested in no. being queen is that fair she wasn't that's totally
1: fair she really didn't she 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 did this very reluctantly um she she could just about cope with being a joint monarch with her husband but when William was away as he often was um campaigning on behalf of his um native Netherlands Mary hated taking the mantle of power she she is it was completely contrary to her nature to her outlook Um, and she would write these letters to William basically begging him to come back because she didn't want to be sole queen even though actually I think she did a better job of it than she thought Um, but I think what Mary was very conscious of is that people disapproved of the fact that she'd basically turned against her father James II. she she'd um you know, she'd come in. She'd taken his throne uh, with this foreign interloper, William of Orange, and I think she was very, very conscious of that. So she was always kind of professing her modesty and and how she really didn't feel up to the up to the job. Because I think I think she was very conscious of the hostility, actually, particularly amongst the the Jacobites, those who still wanted the Stuarts, you know, the,
0: the old Stuarts back on the throne. Mm. I mean, there's a podcast episode all. Of its own, isn't it? The the Jacobites, the yes. I just find it so incredible. You know, we had another line of monarchy really, uh, yes. Exiled, still living, yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All the way up to the kind of eighteenth century, I think they they kind of lasted, and and you know those the, the Jacobite movement got weaker and weaker. Um, And was a bit half hearted to say the least towards the end. But there was this line, this true royal line, as you say, Mm -hmm. living in exile on the continent. And, you know, a sizable number of people wanted to see them back. Um, And uh, even that, or especially that, the Hanoverians, when they came in after Queen Anne's death without a direct heir, they really had to face the, the brunt of. Or bear the brunt of the Jacobite um, hostility because you know the Hanoverians were seen as even further removed from mm. the true line they're just the electors of Germany let's bring back the the rightful heirs the Stuarts and and that was a that was a feeling that was quite slow to die I think mm.
0: I, I, I can see why I mean it was a mm. yeah like I say that's a whole yes. episode in itself but they did there, end we should, up yes you should do a whole yeah, episode on that. that one they did end up with a very nice final resting place for a cath for catholics didn't they? yes Sandra. yeah yeah
1: not bad not bad you know it could have been worse <laughs> St Peter's aren't they in the Vatican how fabulous um oh so <laughs> I, I
0: I we could yes we'll definitely do one on that I know so, there's so many tangents you could go down with this isn't that you know absolutely, absolutely. so um we will come on to our own queen in in a short while to to finish off because we're rapidly approaching her uh platinum jubilee mm. Mm. but of course we've had queen victoria who was by the time of her death our longest reigning monarch now surpassed mm-hmm. by our own what kind of monarch do you think victoria was how would you say i think her, if that's possible? yeah i think the victorian age was great
1: If I'm honest, I don't think Victoria herself deserves to be called great. Um, I think it's a case of um, missed opportunities with Victoria. So um, she was famous for being devoted to her husband, Albert, and, and for mourning him deeply when he died, when he was just in his early 40s, which was obviously a great tragedy for Victoria, but it dominated her life. Her relationship with Albert, both before and after death, dominated her life and not in a positive way for her queenship. When he was alive, he was the dominant force. She took a back seat. She let him run the show. And then when he was dead, she basically retired from her public royal duties for over a decade to the point where her government were begging her to come back because they feared a Republican movement was gathering ground. And then when she came back, she was a better queen than when Albert had been around because she finally was able to give voice to her own opinions and they were good opinions too. And I just think it's almost a shame that she hadn't been able to fulfill that potential earlier. And, And the last kind of three, two or three decades of her reign were the best. They were the most glorious because she really became this figurehead for a self-confident age. It was the age in which we had an empire on which the sun never set. And you know, and it was an age of industry and, and engineering feats. And we led the world. And Victoria really became, came to epitomise that. And she took an active role in government. But I think we can't get over the fact that for the first kind of two-thirds of her reign, she didn't do any of that, or the first kind of half of her reign, she didn't do that. And, and also, contrast her with, with our current queen, you know, who lost her long-serving consort and husband, Philip, and was back at work four days later. And Victoria took more than a decade off after Albert's death. So I, I find that hard to overcome, really, as, when you judge her as a monarch. Not as a woman, not as a wife, but as a monarch. I think she's seen as one of our greatest, but I'm not always that convinced that she
0: was. Like, taking a decade off is—it's quite when yeah. you're the only one who can do your job. Yeah, yeah. Pushing it a little bit. I she think did, so. She did well to come back, and uh, yes, she did. She did definitely. She was lucky, really. Mm. Mm. So, so let's come on to our own queen and the monarchy, I'm I'm interested in. In, in your opinions on this. So she's coming up to her 70th, <laughs> it's amazing, it's ruling for yes. 70 years. Um, yeah. Now in that time, of course, just for probably from, just for the length of it, there's been immense social change. Um, so, but also in, in how we regard the monarchy, I think, and how, how, what mm. we expect, that, how they function, what, they, what mm. they do. The next three years, we go, we're going to go back to, well, let's three in line to the throne, we're going back to a male uh, yes. <laughs> monarch for the foreseeable future. How do you think history will look back at Elizabeth II's rule and how much of an influence she had personally on the way the monarchy has changed over her time as queen? Mm. I think that the
1: key word here to sum up Elizabeth II's contribution, her reign, her style, is duty. I think she's probably the most dutiful sovereign we've ever had, and that's something she learned from her father, George VI, who, of course, didn't want to be king. It was only thanks to his brother's abdication that he became uh, king and then passed the throne to his daughter. She has been dutiful. She's been consistent, and she's, she's provided continuity. I mean, those 70 years almost have seen unbelievable, unprecedented change worldwide, but she's been this, it's described as a, a kind of golden thread that runs through generations and most people in this country never have never known a time when she wasn't queen which is quite extraordinary as you say 70 years it's quite hard to get your head around um, so her longevity her duty her consistency as well but it, th- that all sounds a bit unglamorous and i would like to just say as well how much she has changed the monarchy uh, quietly uh, subtly um but things like streamlining the royal family so that it's less dependent on the on the public purse but also you know as you mentioned she, she has now overturned centuries of male prejudice by giving equal precedence to women in the mm-hmm. order of succession so even though we do have you know three male heirs <laughs> ahead it you know in the future the throne, if it's still going, will pass equally to women as to men. Just the firstborn, whatever their sex, and I think that is a staggering achievement. That is it, and people don't talk about it or acknowledge it enough. I don't think. So I think that goes down as as probably her greatest legacy. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we would have talked about it more had there been <laughs> a female firstborn yes. in the next three generations I know that's the yeah, thing we're yeah. stuck with men for a while <laughs> yeah, we are we are so um so let's well I want to talk about this really the, what is the future of the British monarchy mm. so we've got Charles and William all an adult male obviously George is, is a little bit too small yet <laughs> but he's <laughs> they're, they're already seeming more willing from my perspective anyway, to get involved with the issues of the day. And some would argue they are beginning to enter with some of these into the political arena, which we know the Queen was very much, Mm -hmm. she doesn't, or at least not publicly. Will we see the royal family becoming more publicly involved in the running of the country, using their influence, or do you think they will continue to be uh, Ceremonial. Mm. I think the ceremonial
1: aspect will continue um, because I think it's very important to uphold that that tradition, that thread. Um, but I think you're right in that both Prince Charles and Prince William are, are not afraid to get political. Um, but I think where they can play a really valuable role is is in advocating good causes. Um, and, and the environment springs to mind. It's something that Prince Charles has has spoken about for many many years, and now. I feel we're kind of finally listening to him a bit and also his son, William. But I think it, looking to the future, one of the most important roles that the monarchy can fulfill is one that really got going in the 18th century and that's philanthropy, charity. Um, now the Queen is patron of over 600 charities and we know from those charities and the directors of them, the difference it makes. If you have a royal patron, you know, your income increases tenfold. And I think that's a really valid role Um, And and people who are uh, anti-monarchy, I I think they dismiss it too easily. I, I think they have a huge role to play in that both the championing of good causes, but also the charitable role as well. So I hope that alongside, you know, the ongoing ceremony, which we all love, the pomp and the pageantry, there will be that really meaningful contribution to society.
0: Brilliant, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We're going to finish the main part of the episode now because I have some um, questions that my patrons have put forward. So we'll we'll move on to those now. But thank you for thank you for answering those questions about my pleasure uh, about female monarchy. Thank you. Now, I promised you a competition to win this signed copy of Tracy's book, The Private Lives of the Tudors. Now, if you would like to win this signed copy of this book, then you need to like this video, subscribe to the British History channel and answer the following question in the comments. Much to Tracy's chagrin, who beat Elizabeth I to be considered our greatest monarch in a recent discussion she was involved in? So, much to Tracy's chagrin, who beat Elizabeth I to be considered our greatest monarch in a recent discussion she was involved in. Entries close on the 28th of February, 2022. You can still comment, but please be aware that your answer will not count as an entry. The winner will be drawn on Wednesday, the 2nd of March and announced on the live stream, Thursday Tea Time History Chat Live on the British History YouTube channel on the 3rd of March. Thank you for watching this video. I'd love to know what you thought about the topics discussed today. Please let me know in the comments. If you enjoyed it, please do give it the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so you get notifications when a new video is uploaded. Remember, if you would like to win a signed copy of Tracy Borman's book, The Private Lives of the Tudors, you need to like this video, subscribe to the channel and answer the following question in the comments. Much to Tracy's chagrin. Who beat Elizabeth I to be considered our greatest monarch in a recent discussion she was involved in? You will find the answer in the video. Entries close on the 28th of February 2022. You can still comment after this time, but please be aware that your answer will not count as an entry. The winner will be drawn on Wednesday, the 2nd of March and announced on the live stream Thursday Tea Time History Chat Live on the British History YouTube channel on the 3rd of March. Don't worry if you can't catch it live, you will find it on the YouTube channel on playback. Thank you for watching. I'll see you next time.